Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of Sex, Love, and Addiction. I uh, decided to do a couple of solo podcasts for you because I do so much lecturing and teaching and writing about sex addiction that I thought, well, why not use some of that to help you folks out on my own? So uh, the topic here is how did I get to be a sex addict? And it is the question that so many people want to understand. Where did this come from? Why am I like this? And those kinds of things. And I want to tell you that it is really, really useful, I think, to understand this from the perspective of shame. You know, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a malicious person. I am a really broken person. And if you love one of us, I can understand that you might say things like, how could you love me and do this? Or what's wrong with you? Do you just intend to hurt people or are you a bad person? And I think my experience with about 95% of us is that we're not bad people. We are broken people. So this is a lecture and a discussion, part one and part two, for, uh, for addicts, for cheaters, for partners and spouses to understand where this comes from. And here is part one of how did I get to be a sex addict? So this is a discussion about how we get to be challenged by addiction. And, you know, when I think about being in treatment, I think that really treatment is about three things. It's about working on relapse prevention and learning how to not do this. It's about learning about addiction so I can understand how I do what I do and what to do about it. And it's also about learning about yourself and your history. And out of those three, I can tell you that the least interesting of those three is relapse prevention. Because who wants to sit around and look at their triggers and what happens when I get triggered? And I'll also tell you that the most important thing is relapse prevention. Because if you don't know how to stop yourself from acting out and deal with that, none of those rest matters. The least important thing on this list, well, actually, let me say it this way. The one that everyone thinks is the most important is let me learn more about me. Let me learn more about my trauma. How did I get here? How did, you know, what is, what caused this? And while that's all useful, and I think it helps reduce shame, it doesn't really help us with changing our behavior. So the part that we are most interested in, which is learning about ourselves, is also the least important. And the part that is the most important is also the most boring. So just to give you a sense of that, So this is one of the interesting ones that isn't going to really help your healing in a direct way, but I think it'll help you with insight. And a lot of this comes out of work I've done on dependency and 
just stuff like that and really understanding the nature of what happens to a child and the conclusions they reach when they are not given what they need. And in fact, when they're given very, very different things. So in no particular order, why don't we get started here? So when I say shame prevents us from asking others to meet our basic dependency needs, what I'm not saying is shame keeps me from asking for a new job. Shame keeps me from, uh, you know, asking somebody if they want to go to a movie. I'm talking about the most basic needs that we have, like to be appreciated, to be valued, to feel wanted, to feel like you're making a difference, to feel important. Those are our dependency needs. And we need them. We need them to be filled up in order to feel attended to, supported, you know. And and the problem with acting out, of course, is that we get the attention, but we don't get the need met. We don't get what the because we don't even know there is an underlying need. You know, you guys heard me talk about, I think, you know, going to the airport one time and with I had a really lovely family life going on. And I got to the airport and I realized I didn't want to go anywhere for this business trip because I so wanted to be with my family. And it, it used to be that I would spend the weekend acting out and then be excited about going to the airport because then I could go act out. And now I think I'm much more in touch with the reasons that I want to act out when I'm not home, which is me. So many of my needs are met by being home. You know, I feel a part of, I feel supported, I feel nurtured, you know, all of those things. And when I have to go out in the world, I'm alone. And I think the way I covered for that, or we cover for that is getting excited about the addiction leaves us distracted from the deeper things that we need. And if you were to get in touch with the deeper things that you need, and I'm going to talk about things about that, then you would feel shame because it is our shame about our own needfulness that keeps us from asking people for help. So being fully known, which means revealing myself to someone, involves intimacy, and the intimacy is the risk. With the intimacy comes, you can let me down, you can hurt me, you can disappoint me. So it's easier to mold myself into what, what I think you might want me to be, or try to tell you all the things I think you might want to hear, or lead you in the other direction than it would be to say, hey, this is what's going on with me. This is what I'm struggling with. And I really could use some of this. That's terrifying for us because many of us grew up absolutely knowing that it didn't matter what we needed or what we had to say, nobody was going to meet those needs. And if nobody's going to meet your needs, why bother asking? So shame, shame is the felt experience of being defective that is brought about by early emotional disorders attachment, our connections with other people, and our social deficits and trauma. So shame is a lived experience of that the world is not the problem. I'm the problem. Well, the reason I'm not getting loved, the reason I'm not getting attended to, the reason all these kids are picking up or whatever it is, is it's because there's something wrong with me. It couldn't be that those kids are just mean and bullies. It's that they see that I'm not worth loving or they see that I'm worth teasing or any of that. And that's what they do. We learn shame. Because the needs that we have of our earliest caregivers and then later in life, um, the people that we engage in in life, we don't ask them to get our needs met early in life. They don't get met or I end up having to take care of a parent's needs or focus on someone else other than me. And that's a problem because if your mom is out drinking and your dad is having affairs and neither of them are really around and when they are around they're just like go to bed you know uh, do your homework you know that really engaging with you emotionally then you don't look up especially if you're 8 years old and say oh i get why my need for comfort and support is not getting met because mom's an alcoholic and dad is having affairs you don't no child can look at the world that way 
so before we're about, mm, oh, I would say nine or 10, maybe a little earlier, maybe seven, something like that. Our brain is not able to abstract. We're basically on an early brain and early meaning you, you know, this is why we don't teach calculus and algebra to young kids is they cannot abstract something that isn't right in front of them. So when you're 19, you can see, oh, mom's an alcoholic and dad's having affairs. And no wonder why they don't meet my needs, because you can understand that that's something that's going on outside of you. But when you're seven, you look at those people and you think, well, okay, so what the deal is, is that I'm not important enough to pay attention to. I'm not worthy of love to get my needs met. Because you don't look up at seven years old and say, oh, I get it. Mom's drinking, dad's having affairs. As a seven-year-old, you could not abstract that that is something that's happening outside of you. Everything when you're a child is about you. Childhood narcissism is what we call it, which means, you know, the good is about you. Like I said before, put a, put, you know, mom puts a little drawing of poopy you made on the fridge. And that's saying how special and important you are. But also, and it teaches you inside of you, you oh, when I do things, when I reach out and look for, let's say, attention, which is a dependency need to need attention, that someone's going to be there and they're going to celebrate it and they're going to pay attention to me. But if that doesn't happen consistently enough, that child doesn't look at the parent and say, oh, you're the problem. You're the reason I don't get my needs met. They say, it must be about me. No child of a young age can look at their parents and say, they're not there for me, or they may not be there for me because they don't have the psychological sophistication to understand what it would really mean if mom and dad didn't come home at all. In other words, no child has the ability to imagine how dependent they are on those big people. They get a sense, kids do that, you know, I'm in charge. You know, I think about a kid in a uh, well, in his high chairs anymore. I think of a kid at the table with his mom and, you know, he knows how to eat his oatmeal and he knows how to feed himself. And so mom brings over, you know, some oatmeal and a spoon and she puts it in his mouth and she gets him to have a taste. And she says, okay, sweetheart, mom's got other things to do. And can you just feed yourself some oatmeal and I'll be right here. And that kid looks around, he looks at mom, he looks at a spoon and he throws the spoon on the floor with the oatmeal. So mom has to come back over and um, clean up the mess and clean the spoon and say, now, sweetheart, I know you know how to do this. You don't need me, need me at the table. And I have a lot of things to do, but I'll be right here. Eat your oatmeal. And so what does that kid do? He looks around. Mom's busy. He's looking at the spoon and he tosses it on the floor and gets oatmeal everywhere. Now, is this, this just a stupid effing kid who doesn't understand that his mother needs some space and she has things to do? No. This is a young child who's saying, I wonder how much control I have. I wonder how safe I am. I wonder if they'll pay attention to me whenever I want. And so they are testing. They're saying, hmm, isn't it interesting, these little kids? I have so much power over my caregiver, over that big person, that all I need to do is throw something on the floor and they'll come over and pick it up. And I can throw it on the floor again and they'll come over and pick it up. And that makes me feel so powerful and important. I can get those big people to do things for me. This is something we call childhood narcissism, which is the need for a child to feel like they are the center of the universe because they need to feel that. They need to believe, and, what they, and this is how they learn about themselves, is that they are endlessly fascinating, endlessly wonderful. Everything they do is amazing, cute, you know, unless they do something wrong, in which case they get structure and containment. But they learn pretty consistently that they're the center of the universe, and that's what a child should learn. 
They should learn how powerful they are, how, how every little thing they do, someone comes and throws them up in the air and plays with them or pays attention or cleans up after them. And they have this constant stream of information that's telling them that they have power in the situation and what they have power over is getting their needs met by these big people. So in the opposite way of they're not meeting my needs, so there's something wrong with me, children who have healthy backgrounds say, well, I'm, I actually deserve paying attention to. I actually walk around the world later as an adult and believe that I'm worthy of asking people for help or whatever it is, because I learned when I was a kid and I have that inside of me that the world will respond to me, that people will respond to me, and I don't need to be fearful that they won't. And so I can just ask, and oh, by the way, if this person is busy, I'll just go to the next person because they don't have a deeply felt sense that they're going to put themselves out there and no one's going to respond. If that child's in the high chair and they throw the spoon on the floor and mom comes back and says, you know, you're never going to eat. You need to, you know how to do this. You need to clean up after yourself and not, you know, whatever she says, she goes back to work. He throws the spoon back on the floor and she comes back and says, you stupid fucking kid. I told you what to do. And don't you realize how much I have to do? And I want you to go to your room and I want to hear about it. Well, what does that child learn? He learns that he did something really, really, really wrong. And that mom is really mad at him. And he has to go to his room and think about what he did wrong. And there's only one conclusion that he could reach because it's the only one that is possible, which is if I just didn't ask her to come over, if I just didn't show her that I wanted attention, if I just didn't let her know that I wanted her to help me with this, then I wouldn't be so sad and alone. So you see, the problem is, is that I had a need and I tried to express it. And that didn't go well. So what I would learn in that set of circumstances is kind of to be needless and wantless because I don't get hurt. I don't get let down. I don't get disappointed if I don't ask anybody about for anything. And that's the problem with me as a kid. You say, I just need to not ask. And guess what addicts are? We are needless and wantless. We can do it on our own. Our four most dangerous words are, I can, ha I can handle it. So we are literally bred to not believe that others will be there for us. And therefore we have to do it for ourselves. And if we did ask for help or did ask for attention or any of those things that we would be in trouble because we weren't supposed to ask in the first place. So the problem that I don't get my needs met as a kid is my fault. That's pretty much how we grow up. And if you think about what shame is, shame is the opposite of that, you know, that feeling I talked about of I'm worthy. And if I need attention, I can get it because I'll just raise my hand. And that internal feeling of self-esteem, which is I can ask people for help. They're going to respond to me. I've learned that I'm worthwhile when I'm young and people will attend to me. That's what happens in a healthy family. In our families, what we have instead of self-esteem is shame. I shouldn't ask for that. I should handle on my own. Why do I need anything from them? I'm too needy. I'm too needful. And I just need to hide my needs and do it all on my own. Because what's underneath that is this incredible shame that there's something wrong with me, that I need anything. People with self-esteem just ask and ask and ask. And if it doesn't work with you, they go to the next person because they don't see someone turning them down or disappointing them as a reflection of their unworthiness, because that's not what's inside of them. So we talk a lot about in treatment about how we look at ourselves in young early life and as addicts. And these are the sum of the sort of thoughts that go through our heads when we think about ourselves. Underneath all of our bravado and narcissism and acting out and running the world, you know, what's underneath that is deep insecurity. So part one of those statements is no one would love me as I am. 
I have to be special. I have to be important. I have to get people's attention. I have to create problems so they attend to me, or I have to be amazing so they attend to me. Because if I was just me, I wouldn't get that. Um, and for us as adults, I have to be seductive. I have to go find exciting things to do because if I was just there, I wouldn't get loved. And by the way, in our acting out, it's kind of perfect because no one we act out with for the most part is going to hurt us or let us down or notice that we're unworthy of love. But talk about a spouse or someone who's really important to us. Now, that's the person who could really hurt us because they would remind us that we're not worthy of love. And here's what's under that. If you knew all about me, you would abandon me. You know, I can put up a pretty good game, but if you really knew what was inside of me, I just heard this in someone's couple session today. If you really knew what was going on with me, you would leave me. And underneath, you know, I am a deeply flawed and unlovable person. And I know that about myself. And I don't want anyone else to know that about me. As an adult, this is also a form of narcissism because it's all about me. If you knew me, if you, you wouldn't love me, underneath, in other words, it doesn't give the other person or anybody else an opportunity to move towards you because we just move away. This is a kind of narcissistic self-obsession, meaning to get my needs met and be safe. Then I have to be in a relationship with people or substances and behaviors where I feel in control, even when the situation seems the opposite. So does it feel seem sort of out of control to go hook up with sex workers and do drugs? Absolutely. It seems out of control to everyone who is healthy. <laughs> to us, it feels like I've got this handled. I know how to get my excitement. I, I can create this amazing experience where I won't have to take any risks. And the truth is people look at us and like, you're going to get STDs. You're going to get addicted. You're going to get arrested. Those are pretty big risks, but that doesn't compare for us with the risk of ending up emotionally feeling like we did when we were growing up. I don't ever as an addict want to make myself deeply emotionally dependent on another person and have them fully know me because I know what that's like. I've experienced that before and I felt rejected and abandoned and disappointed and it was all my fault. So I don't want to, and this is what your spouses and partners want. Just tell me what's going on. Just open up to me. Just tell me we'd rather eat dirt because it isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. But deep inside us, we do not want to open ourselves up and least of all to people who might hurt us. And so, you know, our partners say, if you love me, you wouldn't do this. And I think, well, of course, because I love you, I do this because loving you means you can hurt me. You can let me down. You can leave me feeling like I did when I was a kid. And I don't ever want to feel that way. I want to have control over situations where I can meet my needs or at least feel like I'm meeting my needs. And, you know, Porn and sex workers are a great way to do that. No one's going to hurt me. No one's going to let me down. No one's going to disappoint me. And I can move into it. I can move out of it. I'm completely in control. Of course, you know, that comes with a cost, which is all of the really good stuff that would fill us up and make us feel nurtured and supported and validated and all that, all those needs. We'll never get that from strangers. We'll never get that from porn. And so we walk around empty actually kind of with our hands in a bowl saying, will you meet my needs? Will you meet my needs? Will you meet my needs? But the people we turn to and the ways we turn to people are not ever going to meet us, meet our needs. And think about what happens when you act out. At least what I did was I felt bad about it. I felt ashamed. I felt like I'd let someone down or let myself down. And there it was to reinforce the feelings I already had about myself. So I don't reach out for help. And I don't think I have esteem because of how I grew up. And then my acting out, seals the deal, absolutely guarantees that I'm not worth loving, being appreciated, being adored, because look at the stuff that I'm doing. 
Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So I want to look, and this is one of my favorite things to do, is to look at the addiction cycle. So we have, all addicts have a cycle, a ritual, if you will, that we go through. And we can start anywhere on this cycle, but I'm going to start with the word control. So what most people think, and it makes sense to me, is I act out because the feelings I'm having are out of control. So I'm really angry, I'm really stressed, I'm really disappointed, or you know whatever, and I can't handle those feelings, and I'm really upset. And so I go through the cycle and I get into fantasy and all of that. What I couldn't understand, and I'll go through the ritual in a moment, is why would I act out on a good day? Because I'll act out with icing on the cake. I got a job. I got a raise. I had a baby. You know, I'm going to, some of you guys have, you know, your spouse is about to give birth and you're running to the bookstore. And part of that is fear, but part of it is I feel so good. I want to make myself feel better. Now that doesn't make sense with this whole emotions thing, because Joy is a great emotion. Why would I want to damp that down? And now I'm going to explain that to you. Because when we have a need for control over what we're feeling, and that is true, that's why we act out. That's not the bottom line, but that's what we're in the moment acting out over. When we see control over what we're feeling, we move into fantasy. You know, we start looking at people, we start going online, we start making phone calls, and that puts us into, you know, that altered state. I am not feeling what I need and want in my concerns and feelings because I'm focused on that butt or I'm focused on that porn. And then we start the ritual of it, which is, okay, I'm going to tell people I'm not home. I'm going to take that money out of the bank. I'm going to go on this particular browser. You know, I'm going to do what it takes to begin to set up what I'm going to go do in terms of acting out. And by the way, it's really great for your recovery that you know this because at each stage of this, you can make other decisions. I find myself getting into fantasy. What am I going to do about it? I find myself beginning to, you know, get the money out of the bank, look, set up the website. Oh, I'm in my ritual. What do I do about it? So we have these stages where we could make another decision. And that's what, you know, relapse prevention is all about is learning when you're in that stage and how to get out of it. And by the way, when I'm ritualizing and I'm wearing these clothes and setting this up and getting the money and, you know, all of that stuff, it drives forward that excitement. You know, the further along this cycle I go, the more emotionally aroused I get. So it's one thing to think about it. It's the next thing to be starting to do it. And then, of course, we do it, whatever that is. And there is this idea, and it makes sense to me, that we're looking for control when we start the acting out process. And at the end, is some kind of a release. You know, the release of fear, the release of tension, the release of our, you know, we get worried about other things. But the thing that we were feeling and focused on is usually pushed to the back. I always experienced after release, there was a sense of numbing, which is kind of like, it wasn't as bad as the last time. And I know I'm going to not get caught. And if I just put this behind me quickly, it'll be like it never happened. And so I'm really working to not have the bad feelings because I know what's going to come, which is some sense of shame or guilt or self-hatred or entitlement, or, you know, I'm looking for a way out of those feelings because I know where they're going to end up. And at some point where I'm going to end up in the cycle is hating myself or feeling hopeless or 
feeling alone because I'm hiding all the time or whatever that is. And we act out over feelings. So if I'm feeling despair and feeling hopeless, what am I going to do? I'm going to try to have control over those feelings and round and round and round it goes. But going back to, I never understood acting out on a good day. Why do you need control over your emotions if you're having a good day? And I began to think about the fact that our emotions are information. They're nothing more than that. So if I put my hand on a hot stove and I burn myself, I am having a feeling, and you call it emotion, pain. And why am I having the pain? I'm having the pain because the pain is giving me information. It's saying, take your hand off the stove and don't put it there again. Our emotional emotions, our psychological emotions, they are information too. And what they are information about is that I have needs and I need to have them met. Strong emotions and our stresses, they generate and stimulate our need for connection, our need for support, our needs get stimulated. But because we are ashamed, because after all, if I ask somebody, they, you know, I learned long ago, I wasn't worth asking to have my needs met. We're kind of in a pickle because I'm having these emotions. My needs are up and I want support or nurturing or appreciation or validation or any of those needs, but I don't think I deserve it. And, you know, no one would love me if they really knew me. So I'll go out and find a way to shut up those needs. Because when I'm acting out, I don't need anybody and I don't want anybody and I don't want anything from anybody because I am in charge. And so if you think about it, our feelings don't exist in a vacuum. That what our emotions, and this is what I'm saying to you, is that they inform our, that we have a need. And always, 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 at least 99% of the time, our needs have to do with other people. You might say, well, I can meet my own needs. I can go on a hiking trip. I can do this. I can do that. You know, I'm by myself for a weekend. Great. But in the deepest sense of emotions and connection and loving people, we need other people to meet our needs. If I'm in a bad place, sitting in my chair and saying, oh, you know, this is horrible. I'm in a terrible place. What's wrong with me? That only goes so far. My calling someone else up and reaching out to them, that's going to go a lot further. So I want to explain this in more concrete terms. When my dog died, couple of years ago, I was incredibly sad. And what I did was I went up on, I went on Facebook and I put up pictures of me and my dog and my husband and, you know, how cute the dog was and what we did when he was a puppy and all that stuff. Now, what came back at me was people writing me back on Facebook saying, oh my God, your dog was so cute. I'm so sorry that happened. And I remember you guys playing in the field when you first got snow and all of that. So what are they doing? They are responding to a need that I have that has been generated. The sadness leaves me wanting to be nurtured, wanting to be comforted, wanting understanding for what I'm going through. No one, I cannot give myself understanding or, or, or nurturing. I can take a hot bath, but what I need from other people, I cannot do. And so when other people wrote me on Facebook and they said, so sorry about your dog. And, you know, this is really, too, really tough. And I know what it's like to go through. Do you think that that made my sadness about my dog go away? And the answer is, of course not. Even though these people were saying nice things, I still felt awful, but I didn't feel alone. And there's something about our connection with other people that grounds us. It makes us feel like some, somebody out there likes me. Somebody out there is concerned about me. Someone out there cares what I need, which in this case is nurturing and understanding, and they're providing that. It doesn't mean I'm not sad, but it does mean that I feel grounded and connected and I'm going to get through this. So that explains my joy. 
Why do we act out when I'm joyful? You know, why does the guy who's just had a baby run around this hospital with a picture of this little purple thing and say, look what I got, look what I got, look at my new kid. I mean, what is that? You know, why doesn't he just sit in a cold, hard chair and look at the picture and say, aren't I lucky I'm a dad? Well, that's because the joy brings up a need. It's nice to sit in a chair and feel good about yourself, but it's so much better if people say, that's so exciting. And I remember the day that I first had a kid and of course you're proud and what a cute little picture because basically they mirror back to us. They show us, they reflect our excitement back to us by being excited. And now it makes sense to me that I'm feeling joy and I'm grounded in my joy and other people understand why I'm looking and acting that way. And that is that's the connection that the, that the feeling is wanting me to achieve. The sadness brings me to wanting comfort. The joy brings me to wanting other people to celebrate. And listen, when I'm angry and I'm in the copy room at work and I just can't stop complaining about my boss, knowing that it's never a good idea to complain about your boss with a bunch of other people in the room because it's going to get back to them, but I'm so angry that I just aren't paying attention to what I should be paying attention to. What do I want? Wouldn't the smarter thing to be to not stand in that copy room and not complain? Yes. But I'm not coming from a intellectual place. I'm coming from an emotional place of anger. And what do I want in that situation? I want someone to come up to me and say, you know what? Your boss is an ass. And I really think they're a jerk too. And they make me crazy. And then I feel like, okay, wow. You know, I'm not alone. Other people feel this way too. Am I still angry? Yes. Am I still in a difficult situation? Yes. But I don't feel alone and I feel understood. I feel supported. And those are the things that we're actually, that the needs are actually informing us about. It's not enough to have a feeling. A feeling directs you to what you need from other people. But we learned a long time ago to be needless and wantless, that needing things from other people was going to end up hurting and letting us down or being disappointed or whatever it is. And the problem is my needing. So I will just sit here by myself and know and have this tremendous need for support and not let anyone know. I will jump around on the ceiling uh, trying to get attention, but I won't tell anybody why or what I need. And because that's too, and by the way, most of us don't know what we need. We know we're having this feeling, but knowing what you need is learned. You know, if I'm running around the living room and mom's and my mom says to me, Hey, you know, you fell over that coffee table before. I want you to be really careful. No more running around the dining room, you know, whatever it is. And I'm running around and I stumble over the table and I start crying because I cut my foot. Here's two scenarios. One is mom comes over and she says, now, sweetheart, no wonder why you're crying. I asked you not to do that. You hurt yourself. Look at your toe. It's all red. Let, come in the kitchen. Let mommy make the boo-boo better. That's one way it could go. The other way it could go is mom comes in and says, I fucking asked you three times not to run around that dining room table. And here you are again. And look at what's happened to you. I want you to go to your room and think about it or whatever that is. What does the first kid learn? Well, he learns that when he calls out for help, someone will be there and they'll be understanding and they will make him feel better. That's what he learned. The second kid, in the second situation, the kid learned, if I call out for help, mom's going to get really angry at me. And so the best thing to do is not call out for help. But that kid doesn't even know what they're feeling because one of the words, one of the ways we learn what we're feeling is mom comes along and says, Oh, that must really hurt. You fell. It's bleeding. We learn what the feeling is. And then we have the experience of getting the need met. But in my situation growing up, I never learned that because no one ever, you know, what I heard was get out of the room. You're, you're making problems and I don't want to hear about it again. 
So I didn't know really what I was feeling or why. And I certainly didn't know what I needed or how I would be comforted. And if you don't grow up with that kind of call and response between child and parent, you don't know what you need. You don't know how to get it. And sometimes, you know, we have a feelings chart in our, in our manuals for a reason is because a lot of you folks, a lot of us just don't know what a feeling is. We can't even identify it. Our feelings are good, happy, okay, and mad. Like, that's pretty much what we know. Thanks for listening to part one of How Did I Get to Be a Sex Addict. I hope that you will continue listening and get to part two because you'll see the whole story laid out for you. And maybe it'll give you some meaningful insight into the problem, why and how people struggle with it. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.